Father, thank you again for your word. And as we come before you now, we pray that you will speak clearly to us. Help us to understand Exodus chapter 1. Help us to understand how it fits within the whole canon of Scripture. And Lord, help us to respond in a way that is appropriate with our relationship with you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Found this quote this week. That was a good quote to start the book of Exodus. The trouble with the Bible is that so much of it is Old Testament. And the trouble with the Old Testament is just that. It is old. Now, of course, for some things, oldness speaks of permanence and lasting, even increasing value. For other things, oldness spells outmoded, obsolete, and irrelevant. Which category does the Old Testament belong to? You can answer that yourself at the end of tonight's sermon. I think Exodus is quite an exciting book to study. We're actually looking uh, in this little section in uh, Exodus chapters 1 through to 12, so this whole first aspect of uh, this book of the Bible. But it's actually a great book. And it's a book that will stretch us. It will stretch all of us who are preparing sermons on it um, because there's so much in it. And the first thing that I want to say about understanding Exodus is that to understand Exodus better, we should think of it not as a book in itself, but as a chapter of of a book. Specifically, the Pentateuch, which are the first five uh, books of the Bible. So we ought to look at Exodus not as um, a book in itself, but a chapter, one of five chapters. Because it's not meant to be read separately. Well, that's the main thing that we need to understand. It's not med- meant to be read separately from the other five books, from the other four books, sorry. And the reason for that is that each sort of, uh, each part of the Pentateuch describes a stage of Israel's sort of existence, a stage of their story that began in creation in Genesis 1 and ends with the Israelites gathered uh, on, the, on the border of Canaan at the end of Deuteronomy, ready to go in. And one of the reasons why we need to keep our, our understanding of Exodus with uh, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the chapters, is its close theme towards Genesis. We'll spend a lot of time flicking back to Genesis as we study Exodus. And we see it right away in verse 1. The NIV misses out the word and at the start. So the first thing that we should read in Exodus is, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. And that's important. It's showing its continuation from Genesis. We're supposed to carry on reading it. Not that, oh, we've got a new book now of the Bible. You're supposed to read through Genesis. And the next line is, and... And we carry on now in Exodus. But its links with Genesis, as we'll see a few tonight, are important. It's an important thing. And it starts really in the first seven verses. The first thing I want us to see tonight in this passage is how the writer links the past with the present. So we're thinking about linking the past with the present. The first six words of uh, verse 1 are identical They're an exact repetition of Genesis 46, verse 8. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. I'm going to try and pronounce them 
uh, probably my way, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all because Joseph was already in Egypt. You see, the words are the exact same repetition, but the context couldn't be more different. Genesis 46 is about Israel's imminent move towards Egypt. Joseph is, remember, sort of like prime minister. Uh, He's revealed his identity to his brothers, and they've gone back to get their father, Jacob, to bring him to live with them. And uh, there's a wonderful discourse between Joseph and Pharaoh about where they should live. And Pharaoh says, well, they can have this part of the land. They can go to town. They can do what they want, be numerous. They can live there. It's theirs forever. So that's the context of Genesis 46, but the, Genesis, the, the context sorry, of Exodus 1 is about looking back from now an Egyptian setting to their identity in the past. They're looking about who we were, they're looking, about, they're, they're, they're looking back from Egypt to the sort of start of this move, to the sort of family tree, if you will. Now, we'd want to take it and say, well, actually, couldn't they look further back? But no, because at that time, their identity, whoever they were, was with Jacob. Jacob was such an important figure in the Old Testament, just like Abraham and just like others. So Exodus needs to be read as a sort of continuation of the past, part of one larger story. They're looking back and they're reminding themselves, removed from where they once lived, and before something important is going to happen, they're looking back, the writer's looking back and saying to us, remember this is who we are. This is our family tree here. Remember now who we are, those those original number, the 70 in all, who came into Egypt. They came in with Pharaoh's blessing. They came in with God's blessing. And you know, there's an interesting link in the New Testament as well, that we should read our sort of history looking backwards as well. If you look at Matthew's Gospel, if you look at Luke, Matthew starts with its great genealogy. Luke starts in the first few chapters, deep, uh, sort of steeped in Old Testaments. And the reason is that they want to show the readers where our identity actually is. Matthew and Luke want us to look back to see where we've come from. Our sort of original birth parents, if you will. They want to see how our past has taken us to the present. The difference, of course, between Exodus and the Gospels is that the Gospels end with Jesus. The Gospels want to show to us that actually this big, long, sort of linear line, this ancestry, points us to Christ. For the Exodus, it points them to who they are. They they can only look back. Their identity is, is always in the past. But actually for the church today, what Matthew and Luke want to tell us is that our identity is fixed in Christ. And then we move to verses 6 and 7. Because the writer in saying, well, we're looking backwards at at where we've come from on on our sort of family of uh, the tribes and, and, and Jacob now. In verses 6 to 7, the writer's saying to us, they're all gone. That whole generation is gone. They're no more, but the Israelites continued to be fruitful. They continued to grow. 
They continue to grow in number very fast at that, but it's also another Genesis link. You see, the language of verse 7, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. It's creation language. Points us back to, to Genesis 1, 28, to Genesis 9, verse 1, which talks about going forth and multiplying. Might as well look back. I'll, I'll turn to Genesis 1 and we'll do that one. Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish. And so on. So there's that command to, to go, and multiply, uh, go forth and multiply. And we're seeing that in verse 7. The past is gone, but in the present, they're still growing as a people. And they're growing at rapid Rapid speed, the, 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 the Hebrew word for, for multiply literally means swarmed. There's swarms of them growing. There's babies coming out left, right and centre that, 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 that they're populating so fast beyond measure. And it's an important point here that the writer's wanting to show us. It's important because in looking with its ties to Genesis and creation, it's a reflection of God. The Israelites' increasing number was a sign of the presence of God with them and His blessing. You look throughout the Old Testament and see how Israel, when they were sent off to exile or when they were under the kosh, they never experienced that because God had removed His blessings from them for a time. But here God is with them. God is present with them. And God is fulfilling that creation mandate. They were growing as a people. They were growing as a nation. They were fulfilling what they were told to do. But there's also a picture here as well. That even though they're in this foreign land, they're not alone. And this is going to be such an important theme for God's people. Especially at times like Exodus in the first few chapters. They're not alone. God is very much with them. Their identity might be lost, as in Jacob and the brothers and Joseph specifically. But they're not alone. God is with them. God, God is always with his people. Even though as we look through this chapter, it might seem that he's far off. Because what I want us to see next is, in verses 8 to 14, a new king and a new policy. There's a new pharaoh on the scene, and he's... He's either totally ignorant of Egypt's past and Joseph in particular and all that he did, or as more likely the option, he has chosen to be ignorant. He's chosen to be ignorant. Either way, verse 9 tells us he is not happy with the growth of the Israelites in Egypt. And what's strange for me as, as we look at these verses in 8 to 14 is this new Pharaoh's insecurities. So you'd sort of think, oh, blooming it, look at all these lot growing. We need to do something about it. You know, we're the Egyptians. We're, we're the, we're, this is our country. We need to sort this lot out. But that's not what he's insecure about. That's what his, his insecurities are there. Look, he says, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. The Israelites have been living quite peacefully. They've just been allowed this part of the land. They've been getting on. They've been doing their thing. 
They're working, they're building, they're doing all these things, but there's an insecurity here. Well, there's great irony as well, because he's worried, verse 10, isn't he, that they will leave Egypt. And of course, in time, they will leave Egypt, but not because of those reasons. The reason that they would leave Egypt was because Pharaoh's plans for God's people were far different from God's plans for his people. Well, Pharaoh's plan, which was readily adopted by the people, was to enslave the Israelites, to tighten their control over them. And a substantial part of this plan seems to be that of intimidation and oppression. Think of them demoralizing the Israelites, frightening them, so that they would not dare resist their masters. They put slave masters over them, we're told in verse 11. They were oppressed with forced labor. And if you know anything about your history, it wasn't a pleasant thing. It wasn't a pleasant time to live in. In addition, their value as slave labor would be utilized, we're told, to strengthen the nation, both economically and militarily. The storage cities of Pithom and Ramesses were built by the Israelites with brick and mortar. The fields were worked by them as well. Even Josephus, the historian, claims that Israelite manpower was also used to dig canals. So they've gone from these people who were living quite peacefully, being able to do their own thing, Seemingly within an instant, they're now oppressed. They're now slaves. They're now there for the pharaohs, the kings, bidding for his building of his kingdom. But we're told quite clearly, aren't we, in verse 12, that even though they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. One question that remains is, why did God allow this to happen? If God's still blessing them and growing them as a people, why did he allow them to be made slaves in such a way? Why why did God leave this situation seemingly to happen? Well, it's something, isn't it, that God's people experience at different times, whether old or new. We'd have to go back that far in history to see God's people being oppressed. By God's people being treated in such a way that it seems, well, where is God in all this? What's God doing? And I'm sure the Israelites must have asked that question. We know they did in later parts of the Old Testament. Where are you, God, in all this? So where is God? Why did this happen? Well, we know that it's in these times when we don't know what's happening that we always have to affirm some basic biblical truths. And the first biblical truth that Israel needed to establish, that we need to establish today, is that God is always with his people. That God is always with his people. The second thing we need to establish is that God's will is always being done. The third thing that we need to um, affirm is that God is always, however strange and hard it may seem, God is always working for the good of his people. It's got to allow situations to happen. God even at times causes situations to happen. But they are always 
in the long term for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. And you know, I think that's something that we need to remember today too as Christians, don't we? We were thinking the other week in 1 Corinthians 3. Do you know, even if we're going through times where we feel oppressed as Christians, as the church today, where we feel like the world's against us, what, what can we affirm? Well, if you remember 1 Corinthians 3, at the, at the end of it, we can affirm that firstly, we are of Christ. And Christ is of God. And if we are of Christ and Christ is of God then God is always with us and he is always involved in our circumstances. We see a bit of that here in Exodus 1, I think. Why weren't the Israelites just ground to the dust? Well, they were brought into slavery. You know, why weren't they treated in such a way that, that they were just wiped out? As slaves, they should have become so insignificant, shouldn't they? So weak and oppressed, but instead, we're told, they continue to grow. They continue to fulfill in that creation mandate. You see, even in, this, even in this situation, whether we understand it or not, God was still at work, and his plan for his people still stood. And it does so today, no matter what the situation is. And we often need to remember and remind ourselves of that, don't we? That God is in control. God is working for his people. And God is continuing, even in the midst of suffering, to bless and work through his people. God's kingdom is growing. Well, then in verses 15 to 22, we see this plan to get rid of God's people. I don't know about you, but I find verses 15 and 16 really interesting. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. And I think this is what's interesting. Israel's attitude towards the Israelites is at an old time low. They dread them. Yet, yet they were the ones in control. Think about it for a minute. Pharaoh could have come up with any plan, couldn't he? He could have just butchered them all. He could have just wiped them out and said, that's enough for you lot. But in one sense, he does this strange task. Maybe he's thinking, well, we'll use them for slavery, but let's have a long-term plan to get rid of them. And I suppose in one sense, the way to stop the growth of a people is to sort of cut them off at the source. And this is his plan. He gets these two midwives and says, right, when the Israelite women give birth, if it's a boy, kill him, because over time, they're not going to be able to reproduce. There'll be no children to carry on. It's a sort of long-term plan, yet on the other hand, it's, it's an incredible plan because it's a shocking act of violence, isn't it, against the innocents? It's almost like he's passing the book on to the, to the midwives. Well, we're going to let you deal with it. He's sort of washed his hands and said, well, we've got a long-term plan, but you two, you're going to do it. You're going to carry it out. Why didn't he go to his soldiers? Well, as we see in this passage, verse 17 tells us that Pharaoh's plan backfires. And we also see that the midwives are as shrewd as Pharaoh is cruel. 
Look at verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered, Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're not soft, these uh, Hebrew women. They just get on with it and pop the babies out before the midwives even around. They're really hardcore, aren't they? And we're told that God was kind to the midwives. And the people continued to increase and become even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Pharaoh calls these two midwives in and he asks them to give an account of what it is. And we're told that they, they, they gave an excuse primarily because they feared God. They feared God. They understood that, stood that in the most horrific situation, even in the most life-threatening situation, they knew that their allegiance to the one true God is greater than any earthly king. And we see that God blesses them, doesn't he? He rewards them for their faithfulness with families of their own. And God continues to bless his people. But we see another thing. We haven't been told the name of the Pharaoh yet, have we not? But God makes a point of giving the name of these two midwives. I think that's really, really important. I think it's a wonderful, gracious gift of God to these two God-fearing Hebrew midwives. He records their names for an example to believers throughout the centuries. God doesn't care about this king. He's the one true king. We don't even know who he is at this point in time. But he is intimately concerned with these two midwives. For they trust and obey God. I think it's a great honour than to be known and remembered by God, isn't it? For acts of faith. To go down in the records of those who put their lives on the line for God. I just wonder how, how much today we'd be prepared to do that. How, how, how faithful we'd be prepared to be as Christians today. To stand against the system and say, actually, no. No, my trust is in the living God. And I will put my life on the line for the God above. So Pharaoh has one last ditched attempt to rid his problem. Verse 22. Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. Have you ever thought of the significance of this verse? Just look at it again and think about the big picture of the Bible. We were talking about this in the office before. God's redemptive plan is, is his, his sort of plan for his people. Think about the overarching theme of the Bible. God keeping his promise. I think what we're seeing here already early on in the Bible is that behind-the-scenes struggle between what is evil in the world, Satan, if you will, and God. Because the Bible is God keeping his promises. You see, when we get to the New Testament, we could sum up the New Testament, promises kept. It points us back, doesn't it, to that promise to Abraham to, to give him a people, a blessing, and a land. 
And we know, don't we, as Christians today, that, that that's been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus too, that, that we are a people, the church. We have a land, a future, our eternal destiny. And we are being blessed by God. Yet that covenant was unwittingly be known to Pharaoh was about to be destroyed. It seems that Satan has the upper hand, but not so. Because as we will see and as we have noted already, God protects his people. And God's plan cannot be thwarted, not by man, not by Satan, not by anybody. God's covenant with Abraham cannot be broken. So Pharaoh gives an order, but God has already given his order. And it cannot be broken. So as we look back at this passage, we should be encouraged. Even when it seems that that God's plan, thinking in the big picture, is it failing? If all the boys are going to be wiped out, how can that promise to Abraham be fulfilled? How can we get to Matthew and read that genealogy and find Christ? Because it's finished. Well, in Exodus 1, as we think about the big picture, we need to affirm one massive thing. That God is sovereign. And that he is in control. And that he is sovereignly ruling over Pharaoh. And we start to see it in the next chapter. It starts to build up that excitement of not just the stories that we're familiar with, but the the one true fact that God is in control. God is always working for his people. God is fulfilling his creation, covenantal command. He is keeping his promises. I'm doing some quiet times with Nathan at the minute, and it's based on God keeping his promise. It's fantastic. We're looking at Acts and we're into Genesis now. And every so often, we, we, we look at a, uh, one of the, whichever day it is, there's some stickers for him to put in where we see a promise kept. And it's fantastic because he's like, oh, we're going to stick a sticker, Dad, to, to see where God's keeping his promise. He gets it. He's got it so well. And he's excited to study because he wants to see how God's keeping his promises. Well, Exodus 1 is no different. God is keeping his promise. We'll see it more clearly in the, in the chapters to come. We'll see it more clearly when, when the Passover happens and they're coming out of Egypt. But for now... The order has been given to kill that promise. But God is in control. And he's always working for the good of his people. And he uses people so amazingly well for our protection. So let's affirm that. Let's encourage one another in that. And let's go forward, always in that knowledge that God is in control. And he is always working for the good of his people and for the sake of his promise. Let's pray together. Fathers, we close this introduction to Exodus and we get into the more familiarities over the coming weeks, Lord. Help us to understand the themes that we've thought about tonight. As Israel looked back from Egypt at their sort of identity, their past. Father, we, God, we thank you as we look back. We know that it was always to fulfill your promises. And that ultimate promise to be found in the Lord Jesus. 
So, Father God, as we look back, help us to look into the present. Help us to look to Christ. Help us to see his significance within this Exodus story of your creation mandate to to go forth and multiply and how that led to the birth of Christ. How it led to a people for your own as we are today. We thank you, Lord, how you use people for influence, how you use faithful people for your works. And we pray that you will use us for great things here in Broadgate. And we thank you, Father God, that no matter who is in control, control in, a, in a human sense, we thank you that you are the true king and that your plans never fail. And that you are always working for the good of your people. Father God, when that seems hard to understand, when we go through dark times in our lives, when we feel like the Israelites felt oppressed and and under attack, Lord, help us to trust and affirm those promises and that future promise we have in you through Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen.